Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My partner in this conversation is Bo Burlingham. Bo is an editor-at-large of Inc. Magazine and the author of five books which have profoundly impacted the trajectory of values-led, intentional business creation all around the world. Now, Bo's work has been such a big inspiration to me and actually foundational to a lot of my thinking over the years, so it was a real privilege to sit down with him. I don't know of anyone that has explored more deeply through real world examples what it means to build a meaningful business. Bo has given name and voice to multiple movements over the years that continue to shape the world of business. For example, open book management, transparent startups, and the idea of small giants. That is companies that live from the truth that greatness and bigness have nothing to do with each other. This is a fascinating conversation for anyone interested in exploring what it takes to create a business that is both personally and externally meaningful. We discuss questions such as, what does it actually mean for a company to be great? What makes a company meaningful anyway? What is the foundation of a values-driven approach to business? And what are the roots of business success and service? And while we're at it, what makes for the kind of business that makes everything it touches better for the contact? Now, I saved this conversation for episode 50 because it just, it felt appropriate to celebrate that milestone by talking with one of the people whose work has most shaped the way I see the world of business and what's possible with companies as a force for good progress in the world. So without any further delay, I feel honored and grateful to bring you Bo Burlingham. Bo, officially, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. It's absolutely my pleasure. So I think I said this to you before we hit record. This one's a real treat for me. And for the listener, you've probably heard me talk about Bo's work before. Bo, I think I've said this to you, but I just want to formally say thank you because your work over the years has is very quietly, without me even quite realizing it until we were getting ready for this conversation, been foundational to the way I think about things in business. And there's a lot of ideas that I didn't even realize I think had originally come from your work that I've now realized like the lineage of those ideas goes back to the things you've put into the world. So first off, thanks. Well, uh, believe me, I, every idea I've had, I've stolen from somebody else. So uh, You're really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try to be. I try to be. It's working. It's so interesting. We're going to cover a lot of ground in this conversation. Uh, there's there's a real through line. We're going to talk about a lot of, uh, you know, some of your past work, but also the new things you're, you're working on now and exploring now. There really is a real through line there of how do you create and build and operate and, and exit a company that really matters. And we're going to talk a lot about that. But I just wanted to ask you, you something that just occurred to me. When I look over some of the books that of yours that I'm talking about, right? The Great Game of Business, Small Giants, Finish Big, the other ones you're working on now. And you seem to have this knack for like sniffing out these ideas. Like, I don't know, you just like sniff them, you pull them out of the ether. That And these ideas have gone on to be like full on movements. I mean, Great Game of Business basically, as far as I know, launched the entire concept of open book management. And that's like the root of all the transparent startups or open startups that people are doing now. How do you find these things? Like, how do you decide what to work on? Well, I I will say this, The Great Game of Business uh, is an interesting story because, uh, you know, The Great Game of Business is really Jack Stack's thinking. My when I when I write a book with somebody, my goal is to disappear, basically. Mm. And I want readers to feel as though they're hearing directly from the people, my co-author, because the people who I do this with, actually, I'm on a third one right now, but the, uh, you know, it's really Jack and Norm Brodsky. 
they have a lot of wisdom. That's why I wound up working with them. And I think that what they have to say is important. And sort of my job is to just uh, put it in context and a form that is accessible to as many people as possible. You've, you've been exposed to so many things over the years. Do you get some gut like spidey sense when you're like, oh, th- this one's got legs? Or how do you how do you know? Gee, I never heard of it as spidey sense, but uh, uh, I do. You know, I, I'm, I'm like everybody else. I, you know, if I hear something and it strikes me as interesting, I don't know. I don't know exactly why it strikes me as interesting. It has to do with, you know, just who I am. And uh, something comes along and it, a lot of it has to do with just my whole relationship to business, which is, mm. um, you know, this does, business did not come naturally to me. I was, mm. I was in my youth, I was very anti-business. I thought mm-hmm. business was the uh, uh, the root of all problems in the world. And uh, I mean, mm-hmm. and so, 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 how do you go from a kid who thinks business is the devil to you know the editor of Inc. and and <laughs> writing what you write now? How's that happen? Well, I, um, I, uh, what happened was that I needed a job. <laughs> I, um, I had been uh, a freelance writer, um, and you know, freelance writing is not really not like having a job. It's, uh, it, you know, it's sort of feast or famine, mm-hmm. and ma- mainly famine, <laughs> and. Uh, and I had uh, a family. I had uh, two young kids, and uh, I finally got to the point where I, I realized that you know I need to get a real job where I'm going to get a paycheck every week. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I happened to receive a call from a headhunter at that point, and the headhunter had been ref- a friend of mine had referred her to me, and. Um, she was doing a search for Fidelity Investments, mm-hmm. and and I told her, she said that they were looking for a writer, and I said, well, I can tell you one thing for sure, they don't want me. Um, I, <laughs> I, I said, I, I don't know the difference between a stock and a bond, what, I, I, <laughs> which at that point was true. I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond, and she said, oh, don't worry about that. They can teach you all that. They, they, what they want is somebody who can write. I was uh, in need of a real job at that point, and I said, okay, well, I'm willing to go in and talk to them. So I went in, and uh, um, we, and I, I was interviewed, and uh, uh, they offered me a job. So I began going into work. I mean, I would get dressed up, put on a suit and tie every day, and... Uh, you know, go into work in Boston. I was living in Cambridge and uh, uh, Fidelity was in Boston and uh, I would do what they asked me to do. Um, You know, I I will say this is that by that point, I had become a very serious meditator. Oh, really? Yes. And I had uh, my boss, I went to my boss and and I said, listen, I, I don't really need to take a lunch break or anything like that. But I do need a little time in the afternoon to uh, meditate. And he, he looked at me and said, oh, you're a med- I didn't say I was a meditator. I just said, I need a little time to myself in the afternoon. And he said, oh, you're a meditator. And I, I, <laughs> I, I said, yes, I am. Are you? He said, yes, yes. There are a lot of us here who are meditators. And I said, really? Um, I wound up hooking up with 
some of them, and we'd all meditate together. Um, That's great. Yeah, and uh, what style uh, do you practice? It's it's just uh, y- you know the uh, Maharishi uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Uh, what is transcendental meditation? That's right. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And um, oh, there comes my cat. Um, oh, there, there it is. <laughs> um, <Take> it. <laughs> and uh, so I I began working there at Fidelity, and you know from where I was coming from, this was like the belly of the beast, mm-hmm. and uh, um, but uh, and I found that it really wasn't anything at all like what I had imagined it would be. Uh, mm-hmm. These were all really nice people who were really trying to do their best in the world. You know, and there wasn't anything evil that was going on here. That was really my introduction to business. And it was the sort of the first step that made me think, maybe I need to go back and reevaluate some of the things that I believed. I mean, I, mm. could, I, I after that, I would read uh, articles in uh, places like The Nation about the financial services industry. And mm-hmm. it was like reading my old FBI reports um, because it was like they sort of knew what was going on and they got some of the facts right, but they really didn't understand how it all fit together. So I just kept going on. And uh, was there a moment where kind of the light bulb switched on for you that, hey, there, there's another way to do this business thing? Well, it, it was gradual. I wouldn't say it was one moment. I mean, there were a lot of moments. There were a lot of moments when uh, things that I had thought were true, I had to say they weren't true. Um, mm-hmm. There was there was a whole other way to look at this. So I was I was at Fidelity for a year, and uh, and then I got a call from a friend of mine who I had been an editor. He had been an editor at Boston Magazine when I had done some writing for Boston. And he was now at this startup in um, in in Boston called Inc. Magazine, mm-hmm. and um, he said that uh, Inc. Magazine was looking for uh, writers who had a background in sort of general interest magazine writing, which I did, um, and uh, who uh, who knew something about business. Well, I been a fidelity for a year. So of course, there you I know. that's about all I knew <laughs> about business. And uh, so I went and I said, well, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go. I mean, I had a choice at that point. I could have stayed at fidelity. I'd probably be a lot richer today if I had, you know, I would have probably gone into marketing or something like that. And I, I don't think it would have been a bad life, but uh, it, it didn't feel uh, natural to me. Um, mm. And so I, I went and I talked to the folks at fidelity and uh, they decided to offer me a job. So I, I, um, I well, I told all my, I told my colleagues at, at Fidelity that I was going to leave and, and uh, you know, take this job. And they all, <laughs> maybe they had a better idea of me than I did because they all said, well, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. You, that's where you, that's where you belong. Um, yeah, that's right for you. <laughs> yeah. So, so I went there and uh, that was an equally uh, enlightening experience for me that challenged everything that I thought I knew about business, about business. I mean, the, the, I, I discovered entrepreneurs. Um, I hadn't really had 
no exposure to or understanding of entrepreneurship until then. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I found that a lot of these, these entrepreneurs are, are actually very idealistic people. Um, mm-hmm. who had, Souls of artists, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. A, a lot of them uh, had sort of ideas about how you deal with people, which were, I mean, some people would call it progressive. I wouldn't call it progressive, but they 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 had this very this view that um sort of as as one of the companies that i knew about and wrote about um said you know yes it's true that there's a lot of terrible stuff that's going on in the world out here but that doesn't mean it has to go on in here and and mm. we're not going to we're not going to operate that way and um i i found that there were a lot of these uh, entrepreneurs who I'd run into who were politically, they were very conservative people. They were Republicans, all of them. Uh, mm-hmm. But but if you looked at it internally, how they ran their companies, they were running them with a set of values that were, in fact, much more geared toward people than a lot of the, I had friends who uh, were liberals who had businesses and and they weren't anywhere near as idealistic in terms of how they ran their companies. And they were sort of cynical about it. Whereas uh, these other people were, um, you know, very, very idealistic about it. This really sort of opened my mind in, in, in a way I hadn't certainly hadn't expected. By this point, I I'd pretty much discarded a lot of the stuff that I had previously believed. Mm. I, I, I would say that the biggest impact came in 1985 and 1986 when I met Jack Stack. Mm. Uh, and I saw what he was doing at this uh, company in Springfield, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was shocking, frankly. And it, it was particularly shocking in that context in the 1980s because there was nobody who was saying, believing that you should, in fact, uh, share your financial numbers with your employees. That was absolute heresy. Most people thought he was crazy. A lot of people still would. <laughs> yeah. I guess Very so. ahead of the times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I was fascinated by this. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story with me because I, I've, you know, the great game, that book was, has been recommended to me by so many people that I've had on this podcast that, you know, I think I said this to you when we were talking last month, I was like, okay, I, I now I, now I really have to read this book because okay. where you and I are going to talk. So I got to really do this thing now. Now that we have a, a real sense for kind of how we got here, kind of what your backstory is, I'd love to kind of, you know, move, let's jump forward in time and talk about some of the stuff you're working on now. Um, and just to really really quickly lay a conceptual foundation for folks who who haven't read your books already. Um, so we just spent a bunch, you know, we just talked about the great game of business. Um, but when somebody, you know, your other book that I think you're probably best known for is small giants. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone, you know, someone who's never read that book, isn't familiar with it, like what's the short version you give people when they say, Hey, Bo, what's a small giant? Just so people understand what that means. Uh, it's the subtitle <laughs> companies that choose to be great instead of big. And, and 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 what it, it's really actually about a very simple concept, namely, what does it mean for a company to be great? Um, mm. And you know, I, I've talked to Jim Collins about this, and 
he has is what the difference between small giants and good to great is obviously there are many differences, but one of them is I'm a big admirer of Jim and his work. I think it's 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 terrific. You know, it's had a huge effect on me. And and but all of his companies are publicly owned companies. Yep. And that frankly, they're very large publicly owned companies. There's a danger or is that, that Jim is aware of that people confuse getting big with getting great. Uh, mm. He doesn't really address that directly in good to great. Um, and that's what I was addressing in small giants, namely. Yep. Basically, once you say that, that, that greatness and bigness have nothing to do with each other. That um, they're just they're different. They're totally different concepts. Um, mm-hmm. And once you once you're aware of that, once you realize that, you realize that you have a choice. And the choice is, if your main focus is you want to build a great company, um, you need to define what that means for you. And different people may have different definitions of that. Um, and then you have to ask the question uh, about, you know, since growth is a, it's part of business, um, and and you know all businesses are growing. Every everybody in small giants is growing. Every company, mm-hmm. some of them have gotten really really big now. Um, but uh, the the point is is that if your main goal is to have a great business, and you define that. I mean, I found that the companies that I wrote about in small bonds actually all had very similar ideas about what a great business was. And it had to do with their, mainly with their relationship with all of the people that they came in contact with. Um, mm-hmm. Whether that was their community that they, uh, that they operate, or the communities that they operated in, or their customers, or their suppliers, or their employees. These were all companies that were very focused on those arrangements those relationships being as strong as possible. And, you know, that's where the whole concept, what I call in the book a mojo, uh, is, is about. It's, uh, it's, it, was a, it was a term that I wasn't aware of when I started writing the book. Um, it was actually Gary Erickson at uh, Cliff Bar who called uh, it mm-hmm. to me because... Uh, you know, he had he had, had the opportunity to um, Kraft and Nestle had bought his two biggest competitors, mm-hmm. Balance Bar and Power Bar, and he'd gotten an offer from Quaker uh, for 120 million dollars. And uh, at first he was going to take it, but then um, he decided, really, literally, at the last minute, that he walked away right before, right, right, uh, and. Uh, everyone told him it was a totally crazy decision that he was going to be wiped out by these behemoths. Um, and he, he, he said it was a very brave decision on his part. And he said, well, we're going to give it a try. And he talked to his people and he said, I think we can, uh, I think we can 
go ahead. I mean, he, he, not only did he walk away from this money, but his decision to walk away meant that he had one other partner. It was a 50-50 partner, and she didn't want to walk away. She wanted the money. Mm -hmm. She wanted $60 million. And in order for, and because she was a 50% partner, not a 49% partner, she had the power to bring the company down. And um, uh, Gary wound up having to do a deal with her. And uh, so it wound up costing him $80 million more. Um, not only, so not only was he turning down the $120 million, he was, he was taking on a debt of uh, eight, what, what turned out to be $80 million because, you know, there was interest on the $60 million as, as he paid it off. You know, the company did, you know, be, was still growing. And uh, in fact, it was growing very fast. Um, and uh, they went to a trade show. Um, and uh, they were approached by a guy at the trade show um, who was a well-known marketer in uh in in the in the food area mm -hmm. and um he came up to gary and said you know i heard i heard what you did and walking away and he said that was quite a decision you made mm -hmm. and uh he, he said but you know you've got quite a lively booth going on here i mean there there's a lot of energy around it and he said he pointed over to uh, the balance bar, the power bar booth mm -hmm. that was right next door and said, well, you know, I don't know. They lost their mojo. Mm. Gary said, mojo. They lost their mojo. <laughs> and, and so he, he, he was thinking about this and he, he said he came back to to uh, to the company and he told the, everybody in the company this story. And and uh, he asked them all. Uh, do you know other companies that have uh, has lost their mojo, mm. and uh, you know, or what? What do you think mojo is? And uh, mm. and and people wrote all kinds of explanations, and he gathered them all on a big uh, notebook and put them together. And uh, then he said, "Do you think? Do you know companies that have lost their mojo?" And how has that happened? So they, they got a lot of other answers and he put them all together in a big book. You know, obviously it had a big impact on him um, because he wound up uh, coming out with a whole line of products called Mojo Bars. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, he defined something which uh, I had noticed in some of the great companies that I'd seen in the early 80s when they were young, which was this sort of indefinable quality that was the sort of charisma that they had uh, where, you know, people just wanted to be part of them, be associated with them. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's like that X factor. I, I figured, yeah. Right. So I, I figured, well, that's sort of what I'm looking for here. I'm looking for companies that have that. And then I said, well, the question is, where does it come from? I, began to look at what they had, what these companies that I had found had, had in common. And, uh, um, you know, 
it, it had to do there were there were certain qualities that the leaders had mm. which which was very important and then there were qualities that had to do with the relationships that the companies had to all these people they came in 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 touch with and they said well that's how i'm going to write the book mm. you know let's look at each of these separately and um you know that was small giants that was the book you know, as I'm listening to you talk about it, I realize that was so foundational to my worldview in business. Uh, that idea of, I think that is probably where I got the idea for what became the original name of this podcast, which was Enliven. And it was this idea that you could build something like a company that gave life, gave more life to every to everybody it touched. And I, I, I don't know for sure, but I have a pretty strong feeling that if it didn't come directly from small giants, that that was a major contributor to that worldview. So, Well, if you read the 10th anniversary edition, you also know that I, as well as the first, you, you noticed that uh, there were certain things I got wrong in the first. So I saw that you added that bit in the, the second edition of the book, uh, about what has changed. So I'm curious, looking back on it now with a few more years, which of the small giants that you admire most are still operating? And is there anything you'd add to the book now? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> there are a lot. There's a lot. Um, what happened was that I chose all these companies. And one of the criteria that I used was that I wanted them to have been in business long enough to sort of have experienced the ups and downs of business mm -hmm. and remain and remain profitable, and so I, I thought, okay, so these are these are companies that really know how to last. Right after the book came out, one of the companies I realized was got into serious trouble. Mm. Uh, it was the Rayel Precision Manufacturing. I found it out because I wrote to one of the, it was a company with two CEOs and I wrote to one of the CEOs and I got back a message that was obviously not from the company. It was from the, a personal website and uh, I contacted the other one, the other CEO. And I said, you know, what's happened? What's going on there? And he said, well, we've had some changes. He said, uh, the, the founders had had all left the board, and the the new board, which took over from them, had decided that uh, we needed a new CEO, and they had basically promoted somebody who who was at the company to be the CEO, and that didn't sit right with uh, one one of the CEOs had already pretty much retired and and gone to gone on to the board. Uh, the other CEO didn't want to work under this other guy. And, uh, you know, morale is really down and people are leaving. And, you know, I, I realized after that happened that I, I, since I had missed this, I had to write about it. So I, I waited for a while. I couldn't write about it uh, right then because there were lawsuits going on and nobody could talk to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I waited until the lawsuits were resolved. I, I convinced my editor at Inc., George, that I should uh, go out and write this other story and uh, about what had gone wrong. And I did. And it was a very interesting story, actually. What Rael did was they were making... 
what are called um, constant torque hinges. Mm -hmm. what, that, what that means is that like if you have a laptop and you put the top up, it doesn't fall right down. That's because of a constant torque hinge. Okay. And, and they had been the, uh, the pioneer in this. And um, that had gone very well and for them. And they built the company around that. They, they had some other products as well that weren't really related to this. And, and so um, they, they had really sort of banked on this one product. And then what happened was that the major manufacturers of laptops had all gone offshore. They'd gone to Asia. Mm -hmm. They were no longer being made in the United States. They were being made in Asia. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think people today sort of assume everything's made in Asia. But uh, initially, they weren't. They were made in the United States. And uh, and when, when the manufacturer went to Asia, suddenly Rael is in a situation where it's going to start competing with local uh, manufacturers who are also going to make constant torque hinges and who are going to have an advantage, a significant advantage. So they're getting huge margin pressure, right? Right, exactly. And, 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 and they, there was a problem because this was a company that, like the other companies, they didn't want to lay anybody off. Uh, they had a, that was against their philosophy. And uh, the whole way that they constructed the company and they had, uh, you know, they had expanded the company at that point in order to make enough laptop hinges to meet the demand. Mm -hmm. But now, now they're suddenly, so, so they, what did they do? They went and they, uh, the absolutely predictable thing happened, which is that um, there was competition and it was pushing the price down and they had to decide, well, are we going to, um, are we going to stay in the game here and, and, and meet these low prices? And, and, and they said, well, you know, if we don't do that, then we're going to have to lay all these people off. And they said, so we feel like we have to do that. So they did it and they kept uh, reducing the price under this competitive pressure. Um, to the point where when I went out to visit them afterwards to do this article, they were making more laptop hinges than ever, mm -hmm. and they were losing money on every single one of them. When I reviewed it, the, the book, it, the, the lessons around the business model implications necessary uh, to, mm -hmm. to sustain as a small giant were huge for me. They I mean, just hit me just completely landed for me in terms of really having to protect your gross margins, um, you know, watching your balance sheet and then making sure you actually have a viable business. Like it's when you, when you, you hear that you're like, well, duh. But at the same time in the ordinary pressure of things in the course of business, so easy to overlook those things. If you're not kind of, you know, if you're not keeping your eye on that prize, really easy to forget. Yeah. Well, the other example of course was rhythm and Hughes, which was, uh, you know, a just a fabulous company that did uh, computer special effects. And uh, I, I suppose their greatest um, one was the, the one that they did about um, Life of Pi, yeah. which was, which was, you know, had the, the boy and the tiger in the, in, in, the, in the boat with a tiger. And, you know, this was all 
in the movie, and it you know looked real realistic. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was all computer special effects. There was no tiger in that boat with that uh, with that kid. Um, and um, but it was it was a powerful, powerful movie, and um, uh, they won the Academy Award for it. Uh, they, they as the best picture, and the director won it as best director, I believe. Eleven days after they got the Academy Award, eleven days after they declared for, they went into Chapter Eleven to protect from their creditors, and eventually, you know. That company really disappeared. Uh, that company had to be was bought. The shell of it was bought by somebody else. I, um, but the, the company that I wrote about, the small giant, was no longer. Hmm. And and there, there's actually a, a very interesting and moving video which you should watch if you hadn't called Life After Pie. Oh, cool! Which is a, which is about the. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, we'll link to all this in the show notes. The irony of the whole thing was John Hughes, who's the uh, founder and CEO of Rhythm and Hughes, never wanted to lay anybody off and never wanted to like not provide health care for everybody. Mm-hmm. And in the end, his determination to do that wound up costing everybody else their jobs. And, he, you know, he he said afterwards, he says in that, you know, was it the right decision that I made? And, you know, he didn't know. But um, these were both cases where, you know, as you mentioned, that, that there were certain things that you really have to. The problem that they had was that the industry had changed and they had a business model that was based on an industry that was in Hollywood mm-hmm. and that was and that was, um, you know, had a certain structure to it and a certain way of doing things. And their um, their own Rhythm and Hughes business model was was totally fit to that structure. But mm-hmm. then the industry totally changed. You know, it began movies being be- began made all over the world, um, and um, the way that movies. Uh, the kind of companies that movies hired to do things, including special effects, were distributed, and and suddenly, and and they didn't change their basic structure. Yeah, they, they didn't. They they needed to fundamentally change the structure of the business. They didn't do that, and you know, again, this is one of those lessons. It's, it's similar to the one with Rael. Or with uh, Nick's Pizza, which I is the third example, that what got them into trouble were precisely the things that made them a special company: <laughs> their loyalty to their people and their, uh, you know, unwillingness to sacrifice um, their people in order to do what was necessary to keep the build, the business alive. These were all sort of incredibly enlightening episodes for me. And I realized that when we did the 10th anniversary, we weren't going to do a 10th anniversary edition. And and I went to the publisher and I said, I really think we need to do to do a 10th anniversary issue because there's there have been changes in all these companies and I need to 
sort of have an afterword or something that sort of brings people up to date with what's going on with them. And uh, discoveries that I've made, which are very, very important, which were not in the first book and, and in this revised edition, I need to add those in. Hmm. And, and my publisher is a wonderful publisher named Adrian Sackheim. Um, uh, he said he agreed. He said, that's fine. One, one thing I'm curious about, though, just listening to you, the very things that made these companies so special, unfortunately, in those three examples were the seeds of their undoing. There's this sort of baked in tension there, right, between their commitments to their people and the kind of culture they want to have and adapting and doing what's necessary to stay in business. And I was just curious, are you familiar with the idea of polarity management? No, I'm not. Uh, is, is, is this... Uh... I understand the polarity, or I know something vaguely about the polarity, and I can sort of imagine what polarity management is. It's all a little mystical to me, but uh. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a uh, it's not a framework I know very well, but I was introduced to it, and it made a lot of sense to me for solving it. Sort of a different class of problem, which this sounds like it might be one of those problems. And sometimes we drive ourselves crazy because we we try to solve something that is sort of fundamentally unsolvable, right? It's like a, a built-in, almost structural tension that's just part of the system, right? It's just two sides of the coin. Uh, you know, classic ones are um, the need for growth and the need for stability, right? Those can compete. And that that's a central theme in a lot of the stuff you've written about. And the idea of a polarity is that sometimes things are not problems that can actually be solved in any sort of final, definitive sense. They're just a built-in tension, and the idea is you can't actually solve one of these tensions. All you can do is manage it well. And when mm -hmm. you manage it well, you get sort of more of the upside of both sides of that system and less of the downside. And so mm -hmm. I just found that to be a really interesting idea because since I learned that idea, I found myself asking sometimes, oh, wait, is this a problem or is this a polarity? Or, or mm -hmm. uh, I often, my mind goes with it to call it like a paradox. And so mm -hmm. I just find myself sometimes it's more effective to recognize when I'm in one or the other and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, play, respond appropriately, basically. Mm -hmm. It just seems like that might be maybe useful for some of the tensions you're talking about. Perhaps. I, I don't know. I, I'd have to, Android, I have to know a lot more about this. Um, you know, I have to read something and think about it and so forth. But I would say that in terms of the tension um, and dealing with that tension, I mean, Rael wound up dealing with the tension. It's a better company today than it was when I wrote about it. Mm. Um, and, and in fact, the fact that they went through this and ultimately they did have to lay people off to, to, to survive. I mean, is uh, it was actually a healthy thing hmm. uh, for the company, um, and the com the company is healthier today uh, because they did go through that. Um, and um, I would say that you know my sort of standard that I measure everything else against is. Springfield Remanufacturing, SRC Holdings. Mm. Um, and the fact, when you are in a situation where everybody, what is a business? A business is a group of people who are trying to create something 
a product or a service that other people want. Mm -hmm. And they, they want it so much that they're willing to pay you more than the cost of whatever it took you to create this product or service. They're willing to pay you more because they value it that much. Mm -hmm. That's what profit is. Profit, mm -hmm. profit is, uh, is, 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 a, is a measure of customer value. Mm -hmm. If everybody who's in this business sort of understands what is going on and what's being done and why and what the dangers are and what, what you have to look out for, what could in fact cost people their job, and you can see that happening enough to, to be able to make the preparations for it, early enough, um, then uh, the business will be fine. Um, you know, let me just take uh, Springfield Remanufacturing, for example. One thing that the people there, Jack in particular, learned after they'd been through a couple of recessions was that these recessions tended to come every 10 years. That was just their experience. Mm -hmm. And um, they also realized that if you know 10 years in advance that, that uh, you're going to have uh, a recession at some point, you can prepare for it mm -hmm. because a recession is actually for a business that's prepared a tremendous opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's the best time. If you're going to buy other companies, uh, you know, the prices are going to be way down. You know, it's, it's, it's a tremendous opportunity, but only if you're prepared. Mm. So they set the goal 10 years ago of a 10-year goal of building a reserve in cash of $100 million. Mm. Now, if they'd been a public company, they couldn't have done that mm. because a public company, they would have had analysts all over them saying that they've got all this cash and they're not using it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's poorly managed. Mm -hmm. But Given Jack and SRC's focus, which was we don't want to be wind up in a situation where we're going to have to lay people off, mm -hmm. so we want we want to be absolutely ready for the next recession. Yeah, they wanted to not only protect the downside but have a war chest ready to build an upside. Exactly. Needless to say, this is the way our politicians should be thinking as well. But um, yeah, long term thinking kind of kind of a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so they did. They built up this uh, this this war chest, and then lo and behold, what happens? COVID nineteen. Who the hell could who the hell can predict something like that happening? Mm. And 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 what do they have? They've got this uh, this huge uh, pot of cash, pile of cash, which is exactly what they need going into this uh, mm -hmm. uh, recession, the the COVID recession. And and they're in great shape. Um, and th the fact that everybody knew, every, I mean, you could have gone out. In fact, uh, I, I know somebody who did, in fact, go out in the shop floor and just talk to people and say, well, what are you doing? And they said, well, we have our goal and our goal is to build this hundred million dollars in in cash. Um to be prepared for whatever comes along. Everybody in the company, you could stop anybody in the company mm -hmm. and ask, and they would have all told you the same thing. And uh, they all did tell you the same thing. And uh, um, 
you know, it, it, it creates, a, it makes for a company with, that just has tremendous strength. Mm, and focus. Everybody's pulling in the yeah. same direction. That's right. That long-term thinking is, is a really interesting pivot point and, and a super important topic. I think that's kind of a perfect pivot point into what you're working on now. I'd love you to talk a little bit about this book with that you're working on about evergreen companies and the Tugboat Institute. Um, when I saw it, I, I just lit up like a Christmas tree, but I think people should hear it from you. Tell me a little bit about this. The Tugboat Institute is really, it's, it's companies that are, that, uh, Dave Warden, who is the founder, and the CEO of the Tugboat Institute calls evergreen companies. And by that, he means companies that last and last and last and last, and they just keep going on. Um, there is one company in the uh, um, Institute that has been in business continuously for more than 300 years. Mm. It it was chartered under uh, George II, not George, <laughs> not George III, when Massachusetts was the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And uh, it has been continuously uh, going forward since then. Now, obviously, in order, if you're going to do that, you have to have some very uh, principles mm-hmm. that you're operating on. Um, I mean, there are a lot of companies in in this or in this group that some of them are family companies, some of them are employee owned companies. Uh, but their aspiration, the as the common aspiration is that they're going to just keep going on. Um, I saw on the website that, you know, and I'm quoting that evergreen businesses were, are led by purpose-driven leaders with grit and resourcefulness to build and scale private, profitable, enduring, and market-leading businesses that make a dent in the universe. And when, when, <laughs> I, when I read that, I was like, yep, that's the whole thing right there. And I, I just thought it was so interesting because, you know, my background is out of the Silicon Valley world. And it's such a different worldview. And I, I've been sort of re-educating myself <laughs> into different worldviews over the last several years. And I really... I'm appreciating that there is this alternative, uh, and because it, it, when I saw it, it just speaks so much to my values and to like, oh, there is another path here that you don't have to do the you know the five to seven year VC rocket fuel uh, thing if you don't want to. There's another way to go about this and actually just build a great company that lasts. And you know what? Not only is that enough, that's amazing. That's actually what you just described is the subject of the book I'm working on with Dave Ward. Well, thank God. Dave Borden, he was in the heart of Silicon Valley. He was, you know, Kleiner Perkins. You know what? Yeah, he was a partner at Kleiner, right? Well, he wasn't a partner. He 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 worked for sort of the number one guy at Kleiner in the mid-1990s, John Doerr. And uh, he was John Doerr's right-hand man. Uh, in fact, he got recruited to Kleiner right after Netscape, which was the first internet browser yep uh went public and uh they had i think kleiner had a four million dollar stake which just one day it was a four million dollar stake and the next day it was a hundred million dollar stake and uh while he was there john Doerr led the uh, investment into amazon and the investment into google and um Dave was involved in all of that, and sort of his whole worldview was shaped exactly that way. What you what you just talked about, Andrew, um, and there, there were certain 
ways of doing things that um, uh, that he just assumed was the right way to do it. That if you're going to build a great company, this is what you have to do. And then he began to discover these other companies that, in fact, were not doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was drawn into them, and he, and he began to see what you just said, Andrew, that there's a whole different way of looking at business. So the book is really about that transformation, mm. his transformation. What was it that his discovery of these companies and what was it about them that really sort of forced him to sort of reevaluate everything that he thought about business. Mm. I mean, ideally uh, a reader will get to see that contrast between the Silicon Valley way of looking at business and the evergreen way of looking at business. hundred percent. I, I am more excited for that book than many, any other that I know is currently being developed. So, you know, if there's anything you can, you need to help make that happen, let me know and I'll try and help. Uh, but I'm so curious as you're writing this book, you know, is there a story that is really, that you think really represents this transformation that you're talking about that, uh, you could share? Well, the transformation is Dave Warden's story that is, uh, um, that really illustrates the transformation. I mean, in terms of the companies, um, that are operating with them, you know, there'll be lots of stories in the book about the evergreen companies and, and what they do and how they do it. And, um, how Dave, um, I'll give you an example. The SAS Institute Mm -hmm. in North Carolina, uh, is a, is an evergreen company and it's a, uh, uh, you know, it's, it, it does analytic software. Uh, and, and it's, uh, it's a huge company. It's a multi-billion dollar company. So it's not a small giant. Uh, but it does, uh, adhere to these principles that are frankly very similar to the ones that the small giants have. And one of the things that they're, um, uh, noted for is their ability to innovate. Mm. And in fact, it was Clay Christensen uh, who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma and uh, is sort of oh, yeah. the the number one guy in terms of innovation. You know, I think there's something really interesting when you sit with, with Christensen's work between the innovation-centered work and then also the value-centered work of how will you measure your life. And when you kind of put those together, I, I think you start to emerge into the kind of space that we're discussing here. At least that, that was my experience. I, I think that's right. Dave Warden had been in touch with Christensen, and um, Christensen had urged him to go see the SAS Institute. And so he did. And he took a bunch of members of Tugboat Institute with him to visit. And one of the topics that they talked about was innovation and how they go about innovation. So they talked, they talked about it and, uh, you know, they told their method. And Dave um, kept waiting he, he, as he listened to this story and he said, okay, well, so when do you write the big check? Hmm. And they said, we don't write the big check. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, you're, you're putting in something that is going to 
require an awful lot of money. Where's that money going to come from? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, it's, it's going to come from the customers. Mm-hmm. He said, what do you mean by that? It's going to cu- come from the customers. The customers don't know what it is. He said, well, in the case of our the things that we do, the customers will know what it is. You, your job as the innovator is to sell it to the customers. If the customers like the idea and if you're producing something that they really want to have, they're going to pay you for it up front. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and a good old fashioned customer funding, i.e. bootstrapping, i.e. what we did before VC was the predominant narrative. Right, exactly. And and that was, you know, for, for Dave, this was a revelation mm. because he had just assumed that, you know, business had gotten to the point where if you were going to do something new, you're going to have to spend lots of money on it. So you're going to have to get investors to put that in. Yep. And um, what they were telling him at SAS Institute was, no, you don't have to get investors to do that. You can get customers. I read your article from 2015 about building a you know 100-year company, which, again, values, total values alignment there. And you made a point in it I really resonated with, right? Which is you'd think, especially as you look at the decreasing costs of producing software and, and non, non-physical technology, basically all your costs are in the people, right? Mm-hmm. But once you've got it going margins for like SaaS businesses are extraordinary, you know, gross average gross margins around 80%. And so you think you'd have a lot more of this kind of business, right? You're like, well, you have the margins to reinvest in your own growth, Mm -hmm. uh, especially if you actually have customers paying you for the thing. So, you know, one might expect you'd see a lot more of this business and not actually need the VC funding because you have lower capital requirements. Yeah, right. It's true. Um, and uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Andrew. The uh, the thing is this, and, and Dave was there when it happened, was that there was a huge philosophical change in Silicon Valley from where it had been originally, which is we're going to build companies, we're going to give them enough money to get going, and then we're going to get paid back when they go public or when we sell them. But before that can happen, they have to have several quarters, seven quarters, eight quarters of profitable growth because that's what people are going to be buying. Mm-hmm. They're going to they're going to be buying the future margin. Yep. Really, with Netscape, and it was really it really centered around Netscape. And if you haven't read uh, Michael Lewis's book on the new new thing, you really should read that. Oh, I'll check that out. It's about this pivot point. Mm. in Silicon Valley. Everything changed. Mm. They saw, you know, Netscape went public. It hadn't hadn't ever turned a profit. Yep. That changed everything. It, it was also because Jim Clark, he'd been sort of pissed off at, at venture capitalists before, and he wanted to make sure that it wasn't just the venture capitalists who made money when they went public. He wanted the engineers to make money as well. Mm-hmm. That changed everything. Yeah. Suddenly, the predominant way of going about things in Silicon Valley was get big fast. Yep. And that fueled the first big tech bubble. Exactly. By any chance, have you watched the uh, the documentary Something Ventured? It's about the history of VC. No, I, I would love to do that. Where, where can I find it? Yeah, I, I see a few places to watch it online. I'll send you the link after and we'll put it in, in show notes. Very good. Terrific. 
Yeah, I remember watching it a few years ago, and it it features guys like Don Valentine, who's sort of one of the early, yeah. you know, one of the early people in the world of venture. Uh, it's really interesting, and it kind of tells the story of how venture went from effectively a cottage industry in like the '70s to what it is today, which is you know, despite being a subset numerically speaking of business writ large, it is mm-hmm. dominant in terms of media and people's, you know, it's mind share. It's the dominant way of business. But if you look at the actual reality of what it's created, it's, it's not, you know, so actually it raises a question that I, that I've seen some, some people struggle with. And I myself have struggled with, especially coming out of my background in that world. If you've spent any time around that world, as you just said, it's now all about get big fast, right? And that pivot point happened at the Netscape IPO in 1995. And it's only more more and more now with all the rise in sort of the popularity of entrepreneurism and everything. In that article you wrote in 2015, the 100, 100 Years uh, Company article, right? You, you told, there's a little snippet in there about um, Jessica Heron, who built mm-hmm. Stella and Dot, I believe. And, right. and, you know, how when she first presented it, they, they gave her the sort of uh, derogatory response of, oh, if it's not an, a VC exit in like, you know, seven years, oh, it's a lifestyle business. And it's like, well, hang on, there, <laughs> there's a little yeah. bit more than those two poles of the spectrum. Right. Right. And so it just that's kind of what I'm pointing to. Like, that just seems like a data point or a signal that there's this narrative that if it's not that VC thing, then it's kind of bullshit. Given this sort of cultural backdrop fueled by the Silicon Valley, get big fast, you know, billions are bust, basically. And I'm curious if you've encountered that uh, as well. Yeah, well, that, that's 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 a sort of the arrogance of Silicon Valley. Mm. The fact is, is that if you sit down and do the math, and you you look at growing 15% a year over 30 years. Yeah, the compounding's insane. Yeah, you 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 wind up with much bigger numbers in the long run. It reminds me of the Warren Buffett quote, right? Like you find a good company, your holding period ought to be something like forever. Yes, right, exactly. The the thing that I've noticed is you know what's going on is greed basically. Mm. I mean, people want to people want to get rich and there's nothing yeah. wrong with it. I, I'm, I'm not critical of anybody who wants to get rich. That's fine. But if that's really what's driving you, uh, it's driving so many of the people who, young people who come out to Silicon Valley, they're thinking about getting their investment before they even have a company to mm-hmm. invest in. Yep. And, um, it's kind of backwards. Yeah. It's, it's, it's backwards. I mean, why are you in business? I mean, the the only answer to that question for them is, well, I'm in business to get rich. And uh, a lot of them, some of them do, because, you know, you the, the sort of the paradigm right now is you come out, you know, you go to uh, one of the incubators or something like that. And, and uh, um, you know, you develop a concept. And then you sell that concept to one of the big companies and uh, that gives you your nest egg and, and your job uh, at, at one of these big companies. And that's sort of, I mean, it's, it's valid in the sense that it happens and it can happen. But the question then becomes when you sit down just by yourself and look in the mirror and you're at a point in your life where you ask yourself, have I created anything of value? Is this is this world better now because of my, my being in it? Do we really create or contribute anything? Exactly. 
It really reminds me of um, kind of the foundational point of your book, Finish Big, right? The difference between people who have happy exits and transitions and those who don't. And that, right. you know, for me, I, as I read it, there's a lot of details to it, but kind of the foundational point that I took away anyway was like, well, it's really about knowing who you are and what is it you came here to do and what do you want to do? Because at some point, you're not going to be in your business anymore. And that might be because you died and, and you know, that's it, or you sold it or whatever. But that core thing that I feel like a lot of people or not enough people go to is they, they don't go to that depth of what am I really doing this for? Like, yeah, like, like besides the money, sure. The money's fine, but what, why are we really doing this? Well, I, I, I would say that was, that's also uh, true of uh, small giants as well. I mean, in, in everything that I've done, you know, that uh, point about knowing who you are, what you want, and why. Um, and the why is important as mm -hmm. well. I mean, you know, Norm Brodsky, my colleague and co-author, um, he wanted to build a, in the 80s, building a $100 million company was, was big stuff. Mm -hmm. it, and, it's big today. Uh, it was way bigger then. He wanted to build a hundred billion dollar hundred million dollar company. Well, if, if you'd asked him why, he had no idea. He said he just wanted to build a hundred million dollar company because, uh, and you know that um, ultimately got him into trouble because he got to a hundred million dollars. It took him about seven years, and then uh, it took him about seven months to go from a hundred million back to about ten million. Mm -hmm. uh, was a very important lesson for him. <laughs> yeah. But, but there is something here though, I think of, of, you know, what, what I'm hearing anyway, in, in the things you're describing and what's resonating with me as a through line is, you know, the, the versions of these companies that at least I aspire to. And I think the folks in this audience aspire to, they, they really are expressions of something, right? They're not just chasing the money, to, you know, like they're really about developing and expressing something in the world and using the business as a vehicle for that. It's exactly right. It's like, uh, you know, we all just as as human beings, I think we all um, at some point um, ask ourselves, why are we here? Mm -hmm. um, what what does it mean to make a difference? What kind of a difference are we making? And uh, does making a difference make a difference? <laughs> <laughs> um, and at some point it turtles all the way down. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, uh, you know, those are those are sort of basic questions that uh, just as people we need to answer. Mm, yeah. um, Simple, but not easy. You know, when you say build a meaningful business, people talk about building a meaningful business. Well, what does that mean? What is a meaningful business? Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I think it r relates back to very, very basic concepts. Namely, that we're here not just for ourselves. We're here for the people around us as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically service. And that was where the finish big part came in. It was ultimately the people who had good exits. They found out how to serve afterwards. And I'd like to say that when you think about it, business is all about service. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're in business, you know, you're serving your customers or you wouldn't have a business. You're, in many cases, you're serving your employees. You're serving your community. 
And when people ask you what you do, you say what you're doing. And implicitly, what you're saying is that you're serving all these people. And the problem that people who sell their businesses have often is that people ask them, what do they do? And they don't know what to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lost the identity pillar. Yeah, exactly. It really reminds me of a conversation that I had on the podcast with a woman named Amy Edmondson, who's a professor at Harvard and is pretty much the world leader in psychological safety. And we had this really beautiful realization in that conversation. Um, I don't remember how we got there, but it was it was kind of this question of like, well, what's work for? <laughs> like, what's what's business for? Right? Because you know, she's someone who's thought a lot about you know the nature of work, and. Uh-huh. She asked me, I think she asked me like, well, what's your answer to that? And um, it really just, I resonate really strongly with what you're saying right now, because for me, the answer, and it's the best one I've come up with so far is that, you know, work or companies, they're a place we go or a platform to develop and express who we are, but in service of something greater than ourselves. Yes, that's absolutely true. Yes. Um, You know, I, I, I see these stories, these articles about, quote unquote, the reinvention of work. Um, yeah, the future of work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the principle of making things as simple as possible, of simplicity, um, is important here. Because uh, ultimately, it, it all is pretty simple. Um, and... Uh, if you can think clearly about it. Mm. Now I have to go and check on the Amy Edmondson. Uh, is that one of your podcasts? Yeah. Yeah. I'll send you the link and we'll put this in the show notes. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd be curious to listen she, to she, it. She's terrific. She's terrific. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you this and then we'll, we'll go ahead and start to close out here in a minute, but just, you know, I'm, I'm loving this idea of evergreen companies. I'm very excited to follow the development of this book and, and the ideas in it, you know, again, just reading what was on their website, I went, yep, that's exactly what, you know, what I'm about. That's what the show's about the whole thing. And I love that we got to this place in this conversation about, you know, what is a meaningful business? Cause I get that question from people. They say, okay, make things that matter. Like, well, what matters, right? It's that, yeah. same, it's that same idea of like the sort of subjectivity of meaning. But I think at some level, the, what it reduces to is what you hit on, which is it's service on, on some level. It's service to something you care about and that has an ethical foundation, hopefully. Uh-huh. But let me ask you this question and then we'll go ahead and close out with a couple rapid fire questions, okay? Okay. Before we go to the rapid fire questions, one thing I wanted to ask you is a lot of the people in the audience who were so excited you're coming on the show, they know you best from Small Giants. We've talked about that a bunch. Now you're talking about these evergreen companies. So far, and I know you're still working this out, but when you look at Small Giants and evergreen companies, what characteristics do they share and what's different about them? Um, well, that's what my books are about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, just give me the whole book uh, right now. Come on. I, I think what they share, they share they share the qualities that you're talking about, Andrew, and that, that this that your whole program is about, your whole podcast is about, which is they are searching for meaningfulness and for for doing things that matter. And uh, um, I think we're all doing that. And I think I think I think that ultimately, you know, you you face a choice. It's a choice to do something that's good for you, but not much good for anybody else, or you're going to do something that really is going to make a difference in other people's lives. Mm. And, you know, that's, I mean, if I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to sound trite, but uh, 
you know, it's about love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, who do you love? That's a perfect way to, to kind of put a bow on that. It's, uh, you know, it's funny. I think you and I share a lot of, uh, just in this conversation, it's clear to me, we share a lot of, um, a values-based orientation to business and to all the things that we're doing here. And one of the answers I've given to people, and they're like, how are you so, they're like, why do you feel so good about business? Why are you optimistic about mm-hmm. business as a force for good in the world, which is I absolutely am. And it's basically the premise of this whole damn show. It's kind of what you just said. Love is a great way to put it. But the other, another way I've put it to people is, and I, I, I tend to come at this all from kind of a very, almost a Buddhist orientation. Mm-hmm. Good business to me, it's roots like the seed of good business is, is generosity. It's service, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. nobody buys a, you know, when you buy a great product that was built on a foundation of generosity of wanting to help, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so that's kind of another way for me of, of looking at exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very good. I hope so. I hope it works. <laughs> uh, now, now I'm getting ready for your fast questions. Yeah. So, so we'll close out now with some rapid fire questions. They're short questions. Your answers can be as long as you want. Okay. And feel free to go in any, any direction you want with these. Okay. So first one is, what what would you say is the thing you know best? What is the thing I know best? Mm-hmm. What would you say is the thing you know best? Okay, let's get to the next one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do I know best? No, I, not, now you've got me thinking about that. Um, well, I really don't know how to answer that question. I'm, I'm really lost in answering that question. On one level, I, I think I don't know anything really well. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that, you know, for me, what, what keeps me going is learning new things right now. I'm, I, I do have this sort of unquenchable, unquenchable, uh, curiosity mm-hmm. uh, right now. I'm reading about history and I'm listening. I, I should say I go and I take long walks every day. Mm. I, I walk for two hours a day. And I listen, and I listen to books, uh, and uh, um, right now listening to a great book uh, called the "Battle Cry of Freedom," which is about um, you know the lead up to the Civil War, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a really excellent book. And um, but I've but I've actually listened to many excellent books and. Uh, um, I'm so glad for the invention of audiobooks, actually. Me too. Have you listened to the uh, the Lessons of History? I think it's by Will and Ariel Durant. No, but I, I think that that's probably a classic uh, since since the two of them are uh, famous. Fam- very famous historians, but they, this one's actually a short book uh, uh-huh. <laughs> compared to some of their other ones. It's, it's actually, I think it's only like 200 pages maybe, um, but it's sort of a... a consolidation of a lot of the big lessons they've learned through their work. You might, you might enjoy that. Uh huh. Yes, I might indeed. Um, awesome. Well, let me ask you this. What's a, uh, what's a quote or a saying that's important to you or you return to often? And what about it speaks to you? These are hard questions. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Got to make you think, Bo. Got to keep your toes. Well, the, the one that I have often, I, I, I'm not sure I have it exactly right. But it was from Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who said that one must, or you know, obviously back then it was all about is expressed in terms of men. But a man must play some role, not necessarily a big role, but some role in the great events of his time, or run the risk 
of being judged not to have lived at all. And I have, um, I have really sort of let that guide me. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think what, what you and I are talking about right now are, is one of the great events of the times that we're living in. Because I think that there's a way of creating things, doing things, that really can have greater value to more people than ever before. We have to figure it out what it is. And we've got to try and uh, find it. But um, I, I, I would like to think that that's going to be something that will live on after us. 100%. I, I, I love what you're saying there. You know, somebody asked me why, like, what's this all about? And in this transformation that you're alluding to, I, as soon as you said that quote, uh, what just popped immediately into my head was, yeah, we're talking about the transformation of business and capitalism. And, and for, you know, somebody asked me, like, what is it about that that is meaningful? And I was like, you know, we're talking about reclaiming the lost soul of capitalism here. I think that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So, and I want to be a part of that. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, if if you if you go back and look at Adam Smith um, when he was really sort of defining capitalism for all of us, um, he, there there was it was in his mind, you know, the values part of it was just it was inherent in it. I mean, it it had to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, he was. He was in a time, the Enlightenment, when there was this sort of transition out of the religious, I should say the Christian uh, religious world to whatever we've got now. Yeah, there's a lot there. It's it's really interesting. And that's something actually a project I want to do is to go back and revisit his original works and to see how that stacks up with uh-huh. all the narratives we have now. It's become very, uh, for a lot of people, it's become very popular to sort of bash on capitalism, a lot of things like that. And, and I think it's my, my initial hunch without having done really thought it through deeply yet is that it's, it's sort of like you're, you're blaming the tool for what the user of the tool did. Undoubtedly, there are people using it badly. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I, I that's what I like to, what I, what I would say when uh, people would challenge me. I, I said, look, if somebody, you know, wants to exploit his employees pollute the environment, uh, take advantage of his customers, steal. Um, that's, that's, that's that person's choice. Business doesn't make him do that. There's yep. nothing in business that makes him do that. In fact, you look at something like open book management. Yep. If you have a company that has 100 people in it, and in one company, and there are two competitors, and in one of those companies, you've got 90 people who sort of are doing what they're told to do, and 10 people who sort of know what's going on and are figuring out what needs to be done. And in the other company, you've got 100 people who are doing that and uh, thinking about what needs to be done. Who's going to be more successful? Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, I feel like the, the closed book people, the traditional people, are, are losing money. They're throwing money away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's wasting, wasting all that talent. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and those minds. Mm-hmm. that, um, you know, are worrying all the time. Yeah, 100%. So just in wrapping up, though, Bo, let me ask you this. So it's one of my beliefs that it's the questions we ask ourselves that shape a lot of how our lives go. 
and and how we think about things. Is there a question that uh, you know you could if you were going to assign the listener homework? Like, what's a question you would have the listener start asking themselves on a regular basis that you think would be helpful to them in some way? Well, it's what we've been talking about. What's the value of this? Hmm. Whatever it is that you're doing, who are you de- de- delivering value to, hmm. um, and why? The, the most important question is what we talked about before. Who am I? What do I want? And why? Hmm. There's one question that I feel we have to talk about here because it was the question that uh, was asked of you on Twitter, which was, um, how have the open book companies done during the pandemic? Mm, yes. And it's a very good question. And in fact, the answer is that the open book companies have done exceedingly well. Um, they have done much better than anybody else. Um, I'm not saying that it, it's magic. I mean, if you're in the restaurant industry, you're going to get slammed no matter what. It has uh, one of the things that I do every year is that I'm on a panel where uh, we evaluate people are nominated about how they practice the great game business hmm. and how they practice open book management. And then we, uh, I am the other judges, uh, go through their applications and decide who are the all stars, quote unquote. Um, this year we had something like, uh, well, this would have been, well, actually it would have been last year, something like, I don't know, 50 or 60 um, applications for this all-star panel. Hmm. Only one of the companies that had up, that was applying had laid anyone off. Hmm. Wow. Just one, just one. And that company, you know, I, I, sometimes it has to happen. Sometimes you have to do it. I mean, Rail I had to do it and so forth. They have basically, their record has been outstanding. Hmm. You know, again, I come back to what I said before about the two companies competing with each other. What happens actually in hard times, when you get into hard times like this, what happens is is that people are willing to make sacrifices. They'll come to you. You don't have to carry that burden around by yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, if you you explain the situation, if they know the situation, nine times out of ten, ten, they'll say, well, you know, okay, so some of us have to take a pay cut for a while you know, and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. You don't think you do that all yourself. Right. Right. That's right. Thank you for bringing that up. I, I can't believe I forgot that one. Well, just in closing out, but what would you like to leave the listener with? Andrew, the, these open-ended questions, they just really stymie me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell well, you what, you're knocking them out of the park so far. So I feel like I should keep going. Oh, okay. Well, I, I will say this. I hate writing. Really? I hate it. Absolutely. I love doing the research and interviewing people and finding out what's going on. And I love when it's all done and it's out in the world and I'm getting feedback from it. It's that part in between Mm. when you sit down with a blank page or a blank screen in front of you uh, to the part at the end when you finally write the ending that is pure agony for me. Um, And I don't think, I don't know if, I don't know. I, I know there are people who tell me that they love writing, but uh, um, 
more power to them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrific. Yeah, well, that doesn't answer your question, but uh, it's it's something. <laughs> it is something. Perfect. All right, but well, if people want to follow up with you, uh, whether it's you know online, where would you direct people to uh, to follow up or follow with your work? I'm very easy to reach. Uh, I have a website, boburlingham.com. And if you write to me at that website, bo at boburlingham.com, uh, it'll reach me. And uh, um, I also am, well, I'm involved with both the great game of business and uh, the community of the great game of business and the small giants community. So, um, but the best way to reach me is just send me an email. Perfect. We'll put all that in the show notes. Well, Bo, thank you so much for your work. Thanks for being here and good luck with this next book. This is exciting. I know you're in that middle part, which is tough, but it's yeah, you know, yeah. good luck. <laughs> We're counting thank on you. you. Thank you, Andrew. We'll see you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners, and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.